Hi, I'm Lan Up from LeanPub, and in this Lean Publishing podcast, I'll be interviewing Claire Bourne. Claire is Associate Professor of Linguistics at Yale University and Vice President of the Endangered Language Fund. In her research, Claire focuses on the languages and history of Indigenous Australia. Since 1998, she has conducted extensive fieldwork with the last speakers of a number of languages from Northern Australia and conducted extensive archival work with historical records from the 1770s to the mid-1960s. Claire is Associate Editor of the academic journals Language and Diachronica and co-author of An Introduction to Historical Linguistics and has published and edited many other books and articles in the field of linguistics. Recently, she published two books on LeanPub. In this interview, we're going to talk about Claire's research, what it's like to work on endangered languages, and the subjects of her LeanPub books. So thank you, Claire, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell me how you first became interested in linguistics and in particular Indigenous languages in Australia. Yeah, sure. So um, I started out as a classics major. Um, I'm from Australia originally, and I started uh, work at the Australian National University in um, 1995. Uh, There I was pretty sure I wanted to do something to do with language, but I wasn't sure exactly what. So I took a bunch of classes in Latin uh, and ancient Greek, and um, some classes in German and Old English and um, Indo-European type uh, type languages. And then I took a linguistic class or two because I thought, you know, I like language structure, I like those sort of problems, and uh, and so on. And it was pretty clear from very early on in that that it was the linguistics that was uh, the sort of work I really wanted to to continue with. Um, so I ended up taking more and more linguistics classes and fewer German and uh, and English classes and so on. Uh, and I ended up double majoring in classics and um, and linguistics. Um, at that point, I was still pretty certain I wanted to work on Indo-European ancient languages um, and the linguistics of um, of Latin or uh, Latin language change, that sort of thing. Um, but then I took a, a class on Aboriginal languages, uh, actually taught by the same person who was uh, the w- one of the classics uh, or the the Latin uh, people at the the university. Um, he'd also done Indo-European and classics work as an undergraduate and graduate uh, student, and um, was uh, uh, had then shifted to work on Aboriginal languages. And I thought I should know something about Aboriginal languages, even though I wasn't planning to continue doing any work at that um, at that stage. Um, and then, of course, I found out that there were uh, not um, there wasn't just one Aboriginal language. There were uh, 300, 350 uh, distinct languages. They uh, constituted a number of different families. Now we think there are probably twenty five or twenty six different families in um, in Australia. Uh, that if I wanted to work on Aboriginal languages, I could do field work. Um, I could work with uh, with speakers firsthand, and um, uh, I could uh, make a difference for. Uh, for language documentation programs in those uh, in those communities, uh, and all of those things were uh, were really uh, there were things that I found very exciting about uh, about working on language. I very much like working on Latin and Greek, but um, it's a very different sort of uh, sort of work. You go to the library and you look at what people have said about these uh, these texts for the last two hundred years, and then you try and find something else to say about it. Uh, whereas for a lot of the work that um, that I was doing even as an undergraduate, it was impossible to look up the answer in the, the library or it was impossible to ask uh, someone because no one knew, no one knew anything about the history of these uh, these languages. Uh, and the only way to find out about the languages was to ask the speakers themselves. Um, so that seemed like the sort of thing I wanted to do. So I've been lucky enough to be able to do a PhD uh, on um, and um, and then also other work on some of these languages as well. Okay. Um, you actually, I just, I should say that you actually cut out there for a moment. Um, um, I'll let you, I'll let you know if it, if it happens again or anything like that. Um, Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so I guess, um, my next question is how did you end up at, at Yale eventually? 
so I came to the U.S. for my PhD uh, in 1999. Um, I, uh, I went to Harvard and um, uh, I did my PhD there. Uh, and then when I was about the time that I was graduating, uh, the Australian job market went through one of its periodic uh, fluctuations when there were basically no jobs uh, in, um, in Australia. Um, I'm, uh, my husband is also, uh, he's not a linguist, he's also an academic, and we were also quite um, interested, both of us interested in staying in the U.S. for a while. So, um, so I applied to, to jobs uh, here and ended up at Rice University for four years. Um, and then in 2008, I joined the faculty at Yale, and I've been here ever since. Oh, fantastic. Um, in your LeanPub profile, you say that your work combines traditional methods of language documentation and reconstruction with computational method, methods more familiar from work in biology. Um, and I watched a video in which you talk about using cluster analysis, for example. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what your computational methods are and how they're useful for linguistics research. Um, yeah, sure. So linguistics is quite similar to many other um, humanities or um, uh, so humanities slash social fields, I guess you'd call them, where uh, the use of computers has re revolutionized the sort of work that we can uh, we can do. So uh, when I first started going to the field, uh, if I'd wanted to look at the, uh, the properties of sound systems for the languages that I was working on, I would have need to have taken a couple of tons of equipment uh, to, um, uh, to, to collect the information and then uh, analyzing the uh, the material would have been uh, the work of months, um, and then I might have got a couple of plots out of a uh, out of a, a special uh, computer that uh, that would only that was designed to run that sort of material. Uh, these, day, these days, I can just take my laptop. Uh, I can have speakers speak into the microphone on my laptop, uh, and uh, I can produce the results in you know, under a minute uh, for for some of the, the simple simple results. So uh, that's that's one area where where computers have revolutionized the, the field. Um, in other areas too, um, particularly in historical linguistics, there are questions that we want to ask about language and language change that it's really difficult to answer with pencil and paper. Uh, so for example, for um, to take the example that you were talking about with the languages of Tasmania, there are, um, there are documents from Tasmanian languages that uh, span 150 years or so, but because Tasmanian Aboriginal people didn't use language names and because the recorders weren't very good at uh, recording uh, where their materials came from, who they were talking to, where they were, um, where they were recording, and so on. We have very, uh, we, we just have a collection of Tasmanian uh, language data. We don't know about how many languages uh, were were represented in that sample. Um, and if we uh, if we had an easy way to, uh, to to answer that, well, one, one potential easy way to answer that question would be just be to count up how similar the the words in each of the word lists are, and say, okay, these are the same language. No, this is something totally different. So on. But we know that many of the sources came from uh, either the same speaker who was speaking different uh, different languages, or we have multiple la languages represented in the same sample. So just because we have a word in a particular word list, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that that's just a single language. In fact, we know in some cases that the words come from multiple different languages and um, uh, there were multiple people there and that uh, the, the recorder was switching languages uh, from, uh, from, from one word to the next. Uh, that's the sort of Program, the sort of problem that a computer is really good at answering. So it's a type of clustering uh, problem. If we want to take the uh, the data we have and bin it, group it into different uh, different groups, but we don't know what constitutes those groups or how many groups we should have, uh, there are many software programs that um, that can do that sort of uh, that sort of work. And that's a that's a um, it, it's not an easy problem, but it's certainly a computationally tractable uh, problem. For, uh, for a computer to do. It's a very difficult problem for a, for a human to do. 
Um, so, so there are there are other other issues like this that um, that make uh, some parts of linguistics very amenable to doing uh, to doing work with uh, with computers. Um, language change is uh, another area where this is this is really interesting. So, um, uh, the, this is somewhat a matter of debate, but it's uh, it's pretty clear that at least in some ways, languages change uh, pretty much the same way that species. Uh, change so uh, evolution of species uh, with um, descent through modification, uh, as it's called. So you, you inherit the uh, genes from uh, from your parents and grandparents and so on. Um, but every now and again, there's a mutation in those those genes, and that's a, that's a change. Um, those cha- uh, changes have uh, mathematical properties that you can study through populations. Uh, those sort of features uh, also apply to to languages. So uh, you learn uh, languages from uh, from your primary caregivers, so uh, parents. You learn languages from the community you're in, uh, of course, as well. Um, those uh, most of the the learning of that language is um, uh, is the, the same. So you know, I speak pretty much the same way that my parents do, uh, but there are some uh, some differences, um, and so these are the the changes as well. Uh, so the tools that have been developed uh, to look at species evolution in biology are also often very appropriate to look at language evolution as um, as well. So that's the sort of thing I do. Yeah, I found I found it really fascinating um, uh, that given the assumption that you that things change in predictable ways, you can actually take data about language use, let's say in a region at a certain period of time, and you can actually draw conclusions, historical conclusions about what sort of social patterns some that existed prior to the point at which you have the data. So actually, um, you can do historical research by just looking. Well, just by 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 only only looking at the language, uh, it's just fascinating. Right. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of cases where, uh, because for most of human history, uh, people were talking to each other face to face. So, you know, writing is a very uh, recent technology by compared to the amount of time that people have been talking. So, a language has been around for probably about a hundred thousand years. Writing's been around for six thousand. Uh, also, and even within the last six thousand years, most of the world's languages have not been written, and even within the languages that have been written, most of the uh, those populations have not been uh, have not been literate. Um, so, uh, while we have a, a lot of information about the written, written record for the last couple of thousand years for for many languages, uh, we also have uh, the uh, I guess the the good point that um, if you find say a loan from one word to another uh, from one language to another language, that loan is likely to have occurred because people were talking face-to-face. Um, so the, the influence of written language on spoken language is minimal until uh, the, the last couple of hundred years or so. Uh, so we can use that fact to trace population movements through the history of the words in individual languages. Um, so, for example, there are uh, borrowings from uh, Finno-Ugric languages like Finnish and Estonian and Hungarian into Indo-European languages uh, and because of the sound changes and the the stratigraphy, I guess you'd call it, so the strata, um, like um, uh, like uh, like uh, geological strata, uh, because of the strata of the the sound changes that we can uh, identify, we can reconstruct when particular groups were in contact, uh, and if there are a lot of loan words, like there are between uh, Finno-Ugric and um, and Indo-European languages, we know something about their culture as well. So, for example, a lot of beekeeping terminology is borrowed from Indo-European into Finno-Ugric. So we know that um, that they were there was apiary, there was um, a bee cultivation, and uh, your know, honey is a, a loan word into uh, into Estonian and so on and so forth. Um, I was I have a question about technology. Um, one thing that's emerged and become you know quite uh, universal at least in in um, developed countries is you know audio recording and watching television and listening to people talk. 
And I was wondering within the linguistic community, if there are any conclusions people are drawing about the effect that's having on language change. Um, you know, my instinct being that it probably, in some ways it will accelerate, but in some ways it will slow it because we can hear, we can actually listen to people, you know, they can be sort of speaking to us almost, you know, through a screen, but face to face from 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But of course, we also know that like, you know, and you can hear the way accents change from decade to decade, you know, the 50s had an accent, the 60s had an accent. So is there any, are there any sort of conclusions about how this kind of technology is like internal to a language and a region? Is it slowing or speeding up change? Uh, I think you're right that it's probably doing both. Um, I also think that most of the effects are probably pretty ephemeral. Um, so, uh, for example, there's been a, a long-standing debate about whether television is uh, is affecting language and uh, whether there's uh, uh, whether uh, words are spread through the lexicon through through television. Um, and there are there are you know, catchphrases and um, uh, phrases from sitcoms and so on that make their way into popular culture, but they tend not to survive very long. Um, so they'll be current for a couple of years, maybe five to 10 years, and then the show will die, it'll be replaced by something else, and those words will fall out of, uh, of use as well. Um, there's, I, I think it's still pretty clear that face-to-face interaction is what has the main effect that drives language, uh, language change and language preservation. Um, on the other hand, there's also the uh, the issue of prestige uh, and uh, the adoption of particular variants, both uh, pronunciation variants and uh, word variants, that um, uh, that tends to uh, to uh, go across social groups from uh, more prestigious to, um, to to less prestigious. Of course, defining prestige itself is uh, is a very difficult uh, concept. So, some uh, a model that I might look up to as being prestigious might be something that um, the you know, person in the next office to me would would not see as as prestigious. So, right, like, uh, like B- BBC English, as they call it. Right. Yeah. So received pronunciation versus uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation uh, versus the American ABC. Um, so uh, I think it, it is pretty clear that there's, uh, there's dialect leveling across the, the U.S., uh, but there are also new regional uh, uh, identities and regional variants coming up as well. So basically it's all change and uh, some, things, uh, co- some variation collapse, but new, collapses, but new variation appears as, um, as well. So we needn't worry that, um, uh, that Twitter or, um, or, or TV or, um, or, or the Skype is going to uh, cause the homogenization of American English. Uh, it's going to change, but we know that language changes anyway. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I found a presentation online by you called Ethics as Regulation and Ethics as Morals in Linguistic Fieldwork. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, why the Linguistic Society of America needs an ethics committee and has ethical guidelines. It might just because it might not be clear to everyone why linguistics, you know, professors would have ethical guidelines. Yeah, so there are many different ways in which linguistics and ethics uh, interact. Um, so linguists tend to work with speakers of languages, and so as such, uh, our work is often subject to national legislation or international uh, legislation from overseas regarding the use of um, human subjects, in scare quotes, in, in research. Um, so you know, most of the experimentation that we do with, uh, with language is pretty benign, but um, uh, linguistics runs the gamut from uh, putting people in, uh, in uh, uh, meg machines or um, uh, doing 
not exactly invasive tests, but quite um, uh, boring uh, and um, and repetitive uh, tests for several hours um, to work with uh, uh, speakers of um, endangered language communities or work with um, uh, otherwise uh, vulnerable populations where um, the potential for um, uh, at least historical exploitation has been uh, particularly high. So, uh, for example, mm. with my work with um, Aboriginal Australian communities, uh, there's a, a long history of Aboriginal people being the subjects of uh, research and not seeing very much benefit for for that research. Okay. Um, over the last uh, 15 to 20 years or so, particularly in Australia and Canada, but also in the US and, um, and some other countries, uh, there's been a, a push uh, by both academics and community members to make sure that researchers are more responsible to the communities that they work with uh, directly. Uh, so not just to the individuals who participate in the research, but to the the communities who have a stake in the language as a whole. Uh, so, for example, with the Bardi community that I work with, there are these days four or five people who speak the language fluently, but there are about 2,000 people who identify as Bardi and um, who have a, a stake or an interest in the the outcome of that um, that language. Um, so they're interested in whether uh, I publish a uh, an article on the theoretical structures of Bardi or whether uh, I'm working on a dictionary that might be useful for a school program uh, if I'm recording oral history uh, research, then uh, not only the form of the language but the content of that um, uh, that recording is of interest to the communities. Uh, and, of course, that brings up uh, privacy and confidentiality issues as well. So if I record um, a story about someone's childhood, uh, that's, uh, that's personal information uh, for, um, for them. Um, and, of course, they may, uh, may want that, um, that story published and widely available, but they also may not want that. So that's a, an ethical issue that, um, uh, that needs, to be, uh, needs to be addressed. Uh, historically, there's been uh, a relative lack of sensitivity by academics to, uh, to work in this area. We've assumed that once uh, someone gives us a recording, it's up to us as to what we want to do with it. Uh, it's increasingly recognised that that's not the case. Yeah, so there's been a, uh, an increasing uh, recognition by, by academics that uh, the communities who have language records uh, uh, have a, an ongoing interest in, uh, in the, the preservation and use of those, uh, those materials beyond uh, the strict academic context. Uh, and, of course, with um, uh, relatively widespread availability of um, Internet materials and more, more materials being put on the web, it's possible for Indigenous community members to have access to uh, materials that were written uh, in the, the 50s, 60s and, and earlier through archival websites and, uh, and so on. So there's a lot less of a, uh, a divide uh, between the research community and, um, and Indigenous communities these days. So all of these, uh, these topics and many more have um, ethical implications for, for linguistics. Yeah, one of the one of the really interesting um, problems that uh, you bring up in the presentation um, is about having to choose, as I understood it, about having to choose between time spent on revitalization of a language and time spent on, uh, I guess, preserving it. Um, and I was wondering if how how those issues are resolved generally. Is there a general way of doing that, or is it you know kind of depends on the strength of sort of the government support for linguist language programs around a community? Uh, yeah, I think there are a couple of different factors that we should take into consideration. Um, so one is the, uh, the skills of the researcher and the community. Uh, another is the level of interest in the community. So, uh, 
I, I strongly believe that communities themselves should decide what should happen to their language. So if uh, community members uh, don't want the language to um, uh, to be written or continue to be uh, pre- preserved or learnt by outsiders, then that's the right of that community to to make that decision. Um, so that's a that's that's a, a, another factor in where one should. Uh, uh, should channel uh, channel energy. So there's, given the number of languages which are endangered and the number of communities who would like to have linguists work uh, work with those communities, it doesn't make any sense to work with a community uh, who doesn't want their language uh, tran- uh, transcribed or, or, or written down. Um, the so so those would be two factors. Uh, the skill of the linguist I, I mentioned is a, a another issue. So if my primary skills are in uh, language documentation rather than language pedagogy, it makes sense for me to focus on what I'm best at and um, hopefully get someone else to to work on uh, the the pedagogy side. Um, there's also a um, uh, a translatability, I guess you'd call it, of materials. Um, so. It's always possible to make more simple materials from more complex materials, but the reverse is not true. So it makes sense to record uh, complex language and a variety of language and um, uh, make as good a record of, of the language as you can um, and then derive the um, uh, the learner's materials and beginning teaching materials from that source. Whereas if you start with alphabet books or um, uh, simple word lists, you'll never be able to recover the structure because it just hasn't been recorded. Uh, if the the language is still relatively well spoken, uh, then if there are still a relatively large number of speakers and the time crunch is not quite as urgent, then uh, it makes sense to to make different priorities from uh, what you would do if there are only one or two speakers of the um, of the language. Okay, yeah. Speaking of um, the number of languages that are disappearing, um, I saw on the Endangered Language Fund's website that of the seven thousand language currently languages currently spoken, um, half or even more than half are predicted to disappear this century. Um, and I was wondering if you could explain what the Endangered Language Fund is doing about that. Sure, yeah. So we're a nonprofit organization based in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. We were founded by Doug Whalen, uh, who's um, uh, a professor now at um, CUNY uh, and vice president of Haskins Labs, uh, which is affiliated with both Yale University and a couple of other universities in the, uh, in the region. Um, the ELF is a... Um, partly a grant uh, administering body. So we have small grants for communities and researchers to work on language documentation and revitalization. Uh, We have two programs, uh, a um, a language legacies program and um, enduring voices uh, program. One is for uh, tribes who were on the Lewis and Clark um, expedition uh, uh, trail, uh, and the other is a general worldwide uh, grant program. And uh, we also do uh, language promotion and um, general endangered language advocacy uh, work. But our main program is the is the grants program. And what would endangered language advocacy work entail? Uh, it involves just raising consciousness about the the issue of endangered languages. So, as you said, uh, there are seven hundred uh, sorry seven thousand or so languages in the world, and roughly half of those languages are currently endangered. In some areas of the world, it's even worse. So, in Australia. 90, between 90 and 95% of the languages are endangered. Uh, in Canada, it's, um, it's somewhat similar. In, US, in the US, there are uh, some relatively healthy languages, but um, there are also a very large number of, um, uh, of native languages, Indian languages, which are, um, uh, are more or less uh, endangered um, and are losing ground to, to English. Um, the same is true in, in many other parts of the world. Um, there are, of course, other parts of the world which are, are gaining speeches, uh, speakers, but um, we're losing uh, a language roughly every two weeks. 
Um, so uh, part of our, our issue, uh, part of our, um, our work is just raising consciousness uh, about that. Uh, another is to uh, raise consciousness about the uh, sort of information that is lost when, uh, when we lose a, a language. Um, and another is the, the social justice aspect of, uh, of language, uh, language loss. So, uh, you know, language is a, um, uh, is a, a mark of, uh, of a community, uh, in the way that, uh, other aspects of culture and, uh, both material culture and intangible culture are, uh, we as, uh, as English speakers, uh, uh Perhaps have a different view of uh, this because our uh, our native language is so widely spoken. But for uh, languages where the or communities where the the language is um, uh, is uh, much less widely spoken and is very much a hallmark of uh, being a member of that community, uh, that's a a very important part of the um, the social cohesion of um, of that group. Um, so there's been uh, work, uh, for example, in Canada that um, uh, recently looked at the um, levels of um, of health um, health outcomes for uh, people whose languages had support versus those who who did not. So this was uh, rates of uh, diabetes and um, uh, and um, other chronic illnesses, and they found that communities that uh, had relatively healthy languages and relatively uh, good language support also had uh, lower uh, instances of disease. Um, so uh, this is, on the one hand, a somewhat abstract uh, argument, given that uh, you know, language is uh, intangible, and it's uh, in in some ways languages are all roughly equal in that uh, we can uh, communicate the same ideas in English or Mi'kmaq or French or Bardi or Anindiliakwa. Uh, but on the other hand, the languages are also a uh, a monument to human cultural achievement over uh, hundreds and thousands of years in uh, in many cases, um, and they are an important part of their uh, the communities that speak them, uh, and uh, they're a, uh, a guideline for uh, general community health. And so uh, good language health is uh, also uh, related to good community health uh, in other ways as well. Uh, yeah, I can imagine that um, intergeneration, the quality, I suppose, to put it, of intergenerational relationships would play a role in the transmission of language from one generation to another. And I guess one would see a healthier kind of relationship between, you know, elder elders and younger people would correlate to the strength of a language. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although ironically, perhaps um, some of the, uh, uh, some policies that have been designed to, to help uh, native communities in the U S in particular have also not been uh, as friendly to, to languages. So for example, uh, a housing, um, housing policies that um, have led to more housing on uh, in, uh, on reservations have led to less overcrowding, but have also led to uh, less intergenerational um, uh, language transmission because rather than having grandparents, parents, children, uh, or great-grandparents even in, in the same house, um, there's um, uh, more of the uh, parents and children in the same house and the, the primary caregiving uh, for the for the children has um, uh, been uh, transferred to, to preschools and uh, and kindergartens and daycares and uh, and so on, where the staff may or may not speak the uh, speak the local language. So on the one hand, that's led to to very tangible economic gains and um, uh, and uh, increases in overall quality of uh, of life that I wouldn't want to gainsay for a moment. But it's also had a um, a byproduct of making uh, the an already fragile situation more fragile for the for the languages. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks very much. It's uh, really interesting. I hadn't thought about that that case before. Um, if uh, I, I'd like to uh, turn now, maybe to ask you um, on the 
topic of raising awareness um, uh, mm -hmm. about some of the languages that you've that you've worked with specifically. Um, and uh, one of your one of the books you've you've got on LeanPub um, is about a traditional language spoken by the peoples of the Crocodile Islands in northern Australia. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the people and what makes their language unique. Sure. Yeah. So that's the Yannangu language uh, from uh, the area north of Milangimbi in the far north of uh, of Australia. So if you picture a map of Australia, uh, if you know where Darwin is, it's basically in the centre of the uh, the Northern Territory uh, on the coast uh, at the at the top of the top of the top end, as it were. Um, and you go east about four hundred kilometres. Uh, the Milangimbi region and um, uh, Arnhem Land is, um, is is that part of Australia. And um, Yannangu uh, speakers uh, live in live in that region. So the, the Crocodile Islands, the offshore islands, and and um, uh, many live on uh, Milangimbi community and Galawinko uh, community as um, as well. Uh, I started working with uh, the Yanango community in 2004. Um, I uh, was uh, approached to do a language, uh, basically language documentation project. So uh, I'd heard that uh, some of the speakers of the language were interested in making a record of their language and they wanted a linguist to, to come and work with them. Uh, there was uh, already some language work. Uh, so Bentley James had been working uh, there for a number of years and um, uh, there had been some other recordings with uh, with speakers going back to the 1970s or so. Um, but um, there hadn't been a, a fully sustained uh uh, linguistic documentation of um, of the languages before, uh, so I went for six weeks or so and um, did a draft of the learner's guide and uh, uh, worked on a, a draft dictionary that was already in progress. Uh, and then I came back a couple of other times to to work with uh, the community members uh, again to do more uh, language documentation work. Um, the community is uh, is quite small even by um, by Australian standards. Um, so the uh, uh, in general, so um, perhaps I should give a little context about um, Aboriginal people in Australia. So about 2% of the Australian population identifies as Aboriginal, and of that, about um, uh, between 10 and 20% of Aboriginal people speak an Aboriginal language. Um, so we're talking about 250,000 people who speak a um, – sorry, 250,000 people who identify as Aboriginal, um, and uh, I think that's right – yeah, about 250,000 people and about uh, between 30 and 40,000 speakers of uh, Aboriginal languages. Um, within that, uh, within Arnhem Land, there are about 5,000 people who speak Jambarpungu, uh, which is the main lingua franca of that um, that region, the common language of that region. Um, but within that area, there are also Yanlingu speakers and there are about um, 15 Yanlingu speakers. Um, so uh, a small language within a, uh, the minority language within a minority uh, community. Yanango is one of 30 or so different languages in um, uh, in that part of Arnhem Land and one of uh, roughly 400 Aboriginal languages, as, as I mentioned before. Um, so uh, I worked with uh, about five or six different um, different speakers, so about a third of the, the Yanango community, um, and uh, we spent, uh, I guess, about six months or so uh, over uh, four years uh, working on different aspects of the language. So we'd um, do dictionary work, we did translation, uh, we did uh, material culture recordings. So um, I learned how to weave baskets and um, uh, pandanus mats. Um, I learned um, a bit about uh, the bush foods, so what foods are good to eat, um, uh, a bit about um, uh, Yongo. Um, so Yongo is the name of the, uh, the uh, Yongo is the Yanlingo name for Aboriginal people. 
Um, so for Yamangu people's, uh, I guess you'd call it worldview um, and um, uh, some uh, ceremonial uh, information. Um, and so p- part of the work was strictly linguistic. So you know, how do you say dog? How do you say cat? How do you say snake? That sort of thing. Um, part of it was how to document traditional practices. And, um, and part of it was how to document uh, conversation and, um, and other aspects of, um, uh, of language knowledge as, uh, as well. It's fascinating. Um, you say that in the language, words um, change shape depending on what part of the sentence they're used in. I was wondering if you could explain explain what that means and maybe give an example if you if you have one ready to hand. Uh, yeah, sure. So that's um, that's actually very common in uh, in languages. I'm uh, trying to guess it. Let, let me guess at a percentage. I would say probably 85% of the world's languages have that to at least to some, some degree. Um, it's true in English, uh, for example, with she versus her. Um, so we say she is running, but um, uh, I have her book. Um, so you know, that refers to the same person, but the form of the word changes depending on whether it's a possessive pronoun or whether it's the subject of the sentence. Uh, we have uh, verbs in English that change depending on the the tense. Uh, so if it's past, present, or future, um, or if it's a participle, and so on. So if, you know, run versus ran versus running, and so on. Um, and Yanlango is just like that. So uh, the Yanlango has rather more uh, uh, inflection than than English does, um, but it's of a similar sort of type. Uh, so for example, in um, in Yanlango, uh, the word for snake is mol. Um, and if you want to talk about something, uh, if I'm talking about seeing the snake, I would say moltna, uh, so with a N-A-H-A, na, at, um, at the end. Uh, if I was talking about the snake seeing me, I would say mortyu, uh, with a U, uh, at the, at the end. Um, if I was talking about something, um, on the snake, I would say, uh, moltna, with a na, uh, at the end. Um, and if I was talking about something to do to do with snakes, if we were talking about the general subject of snakes, uh, I would say multbo. Um, so we have the root of the word mol uh, in each case, but we have different endings on the uh, on the word. Uh, and there are some other ones as well, but um, but those are some of the main ones. Okay, um, I'd like to take a couple minutes too to ask you about the um, the Bardi language um, and the people who speak it. Um, and yeah, I have, I have a specific question too about the language where in, in the book it says that um, words change depending on who is doing what to who. And I was sort of curious to ask about, about what that means. Yeah, sure. So Bardi is, um, is not related to Yanlango. Bardi is spoken uh, in the, the far northwest of Australia. Uh, so it's, um, if you think about the west coast of Australia, um, the coast goes roughly north for a couple of thousand kilometers, uh, and then it turns east. Um, the Bardi uh, is spoken right at the tip of the Dampier Peninsula um, in, uh, in that part of western Australia. So it's um, about as far away from my hometown in Australia as you can get, as my parents remind me from, <laughs> uh, from time to time. Um, these days, there are about four or five Bardi speakers, um, but as I mentioned, about 2,000 people who identify as Bardi and um, a number of uh, other people who uh, have knowledge of the language but uh, are, not, um, uh, are not full speakers of the, the language. So they understand it and they, they use words, but, um, but they don't use it as an everyday uh, everyday language. So th- this learner's guide was written for, for them. I have a, a long uh, association with One Arm Point School in, um, uh, in the, at the tip of the Dampier Peninsula, uh, where I've been going for, uh, for I guess, more than 15 years now um, to, to, to do language work of a lot of different, uh, different types. Um, Bari is, uh, is like many language, languages, a language that, uh, where the words change depending on the position in the, uh, in the sentence. Bari has very complicated verbs. So um, 
to uh, say, so they have both prefixes and suffixes. So you change the beginnings of the words and the ends of the words. Um, so for example, mara uh, is a word that means uh, means cook. Uh, if uh, I am cooking something, it's nanmaran. Uh, if you are cooking something, it's minmaran. Uh, if I was cooking something, it's nangamaragal. Um, uh, um, and uh, and so on and so forth. If I'm cooking something for you, uh, it's um, um So there are lots of different uh, prefixes and suffixes that um, that go on. Uh, Bardi also has uh, case marking, as it's called. So the forms of nouns change depending on whether they are the subject or the object of the uh, of the verb. So um, the way I would say um, I see the crocodile is different from the crocodile sees me. Um, so if it's I see the crocodile, it would be nayonim for I, and the nim part on nayonim tells uh, tells the the listener that I am doing whatever the the verb is going to be, um, and then verb the verb would be nganjalan. Um, so the nga on the verb would be uh, again saying that it's me that's doing that, and jala means means to see, and then lingur is the word for crocodile. Um, so that would be I see the crocodile. Uh, now if it's the crocodile sees me, uh, we would put the nim on lingur. Uh, so it would be lingur nim, uh, and then ngayo for, for I, uh, and then si would be uh, injalan. So it's injalan for he, she, or it doing something, but nanjalan for I am doing something. Um, now the order of words doesn't doesn't matter. So for English, uh, in, in Bari, so for uh, for English, I see the crocodile and the crocodile sees me, um, there's the si part of the word that changes depending on if it's the crocodile or me doing the doing the watching, doing the seeing. But um, mostly it's the order of words that um, uh, that changes. So if it was the past tense and crocodile saw me, I saw the crocodile, it's only the word order that tells us who is doing the seeing and who is uh, who is being seen. Uh, but for Bardi, it's all these word pieces that um, that do that order, uh, that, that give us that information. And um, the order of the words tells us uh, what's the most important part of the sentence. And Bardi seem to have um, quite a bit more complexity around the naming of family relationships than we're than English speakers might be used to. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how that works. Yeah, sure. So um, Bardi has, uh, let's see, so for um, for kinship terms, if we take um, the, uh, so there's Ngayo, which is me. Um, then if we think about my generation, um, there's uh, a term for older brother and younger brother. Um, and then there's a term for older sister and younger sister. So um, English has brother and sister, and then we can modify that to be older or um, or younger. Um, but um, for um, for Bardi, there are different terms for um, for each of these uh, each of these relations. Um, there are terms for mother and father, um, of course. Um, but then if we think about son and daughter um, in English, son is a male child and daughter is a female child. But for Bardi, uh, the two terms Ala and Bo. Uh, are the uh, to do with the the sex of the referent, uh, so the the sex of the person who is talking. So um, I would talk about my kids as bo, um, so a, a woman's child, uh, but my husband would talk about our kids as ala, um, i.e. a man's uh, a man's child. So the whether it's a, a boy child or a girl child um, isn't part of the the meaning of that word. It's who's doing the uh, who's doing the talking. Um, so that's a, a bit of a difference between uh, between English and Bardi. But lots of languages have uh, have that. Um, that sort of system. Um, then, then for uh, just one other thing for um, uh, for kinship, uh, uh, probably the biggest difference is the grandparent terms. So English has grandmother and grandfather, and it doesn't matter if it's your mother's father or your father's father that we're talking about. It's grandfather or granddad for for both. Um, but for Bardi, there are four different terms for um, uh, mother's father, 
father's father, um, mother's mother, and father's mother. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Um, uh, it's it's uh, I mean you know a common observation of course, but but getting a window into entirely different ways than one might be of people relating to each other or to the world around them, and even to to animals and things like that must make um, must make your work really just sort of endlessly fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Um, I guess I have, I, we're running about of time a little bit here, but I just have one question about um, how, how is it that you discovered LeanPub and why did you decide to publish these learner's guides on LeanPub? Uh, so I was looking for, um, initially I was looking for a traditional publisher for the learner's guides and um, I sent off a publication proposal to a couple of different local publishers in Australia and um, I wouldn't hear anything for uh, you know, a couple of months, a couple of years in some cases uh, and then I'd get back a, um, a very polite note that, um, that they were very sorry but um, they didn't think the print run would cover the costs of the, uh, the book and uh, just they, uh, uh, yeah, did, they didn't want to, to uh, publish the uh, the book given the likely low uh, low potential sales um, so I started looking into online uh, publishers and I looked at um, uh, a couple of different options both academic publishers and self-publishing and um, it looked like the lean pub model was uh, was one that would be very workable for the uh, for the sort of material I had um, I was familiar with um, some of lean pubs publications from uh, from a couple of uh, Coursera um, uh, statistics and um, data analysis courses that um, uh, that I'd seen. So, uh, so I'd seen the the publication model and the uh, the royalty model and the uh, name your own price uh, type um, type model, and that seemed like a a really nice way to um, both encourage people who have the uh, the means to pay for uh, for the learner's guides to to, to pay for them, uh, but not to restrict uh, the materials to um, uh, to community members or to, to other people who would really like a copy, but um, but uh, for whatever reason can't pay the full price or um, uh, or can't pay pay anything. This is a a longstanding issue in um, uh, in making materials accessible to uh, uh, to uh, indigenous communities and other communities um, where um, you know not everyone has the um, uh, has the ability to uh, to spend a couple of hundred dollars on books just on a uh, on a whim, um, and um, uh, and so it's a uh, I'm a great believer in making uh, these uh, these materials as uh, accessible uh, as uh, as possible. Um, on the other hand, uh, it also seemed like uh, if people are willing to pay for uh, for the materials, it would be nice to have uh, have those materials uh, uh, generate some revenue for um, for the uh, Endangered Language Fund um, and. Um, uh, and so this seemed like a, a nice compromise between uh, between those two uh, those two goals. Yeah, thanks thanks very much for that. I was uh, that's what I was kind of hoping to hear. Um, uh, yeah, the 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 pay what you can model. So in in LeanPub, um, we have a variable pricing model where you, the author sets a minimum price and a suggested price uh, that the person the customer pays for the book, and that minimum price can be as low as zero. And so um, the, some of the um, Johns Hopkins professors who have these um, Coursera st statistics courses, uh, data science courses, um, uh, it was really important to them also that they could have a minimum price of free for some of their books because they, 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 you know, their students are from all around the world and they're all, you know, with, diff with different currencies and, you know, different, different levels of, of general wealth. Um, and it was very important to them that, that, you know, people should be able to, pay pay only what they want to 
Um, right. Yeah. Purchasing power varies uh, extensively. I guess mm -hmm. e even within the the US, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. if we think about faculty salaries versus uh, tenured faculty salaries versus adjunct salaries yeah, and yes. um, versus uh, graduate student salaries. Um, yeah. 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 And um, and also um, we have a lean pub for causes program, which allows authors to share their royalties. And in your case, it's 100 percent of your royalties um, with a participating charity or nonprofit organization. And so you, you signed up the ELF, um, and then, uh, and then proceeded to share your royalties. And I was, I was, we were very glad to see that happen too, because that's something that that's very important to us as well to see, to see books related to causes and the book can become a form of support, um, to a cause. Great. Yeah. And I hope that in future we will have, uh, some other, uh, language documentation materials that, um, that might join the, the learner's guides that are there at the moment. Great, great. Well, um, I guess that I guess our time's up. Uh, thank you very much, Claire, for being on the Lean Publishing podcast and for um, using LeanPub to publish your books. No worries. Thanks, Len.